Thank you. Wow. It's impressive. Hey, my name's Josh, and I am the pastor here, and I've been on vacation. It's good to be back. I want to just highlight a few things. Whenever I was a youth pastor and I'd go on vacation, I came back and my sermon was like two hours long because I had so much built up, I wanted to say, hopefully that's not the case today. But I do want to highlight a few things, not just the program, but on the back there, the monthly giving. This church is a very generous church. Just to let you know kind of what's happened, last in 2020, we decided to plant this church. We went to my, the Sending Church, Redemption Church Gateway. They raised $100,000 to send us off. In that same season, the launch team, which is a lot of you in this room, also gave around $100,000 to help us get started. So we had this great beginning where we spent about half of that, but we still have this big savings. And then heading into this year, we launched this church, and this church has been giving faithfully and generously and graciously, so much so uh, that other churches in this area really believe in this. There's another church that has decided to partner with us, meaning they're just going to send us a check every month for two months. And part of the reason was I said, I'd really like to hire uh, this guy, Chandler Cruz. He's amazing at Fortnite and Rocket League, and my kids could really use a mentor in the video game realm. And he plays piano decently, but I think think he'd be all right. So we got to hire Chandler Cruz full-time because of the generosity in this room and the generosity in this area, which is just Amazing! It's just crazy to think that God really is doing this, and it shows through the giving. So that's why we wanted to have this, just to kind of show you, like, we're doing pretty good. And we are not, like, the biggest or the baddest church on the block, but we're faithful and we're committed to what God has told us to be committed to. So that's what that monthly giving is, just to show you internally is the giving done here within Redemption North Mountain. The external giving is... All redemption giving, the church giving to support us is like a missionary outpost. They do that for three years as well as the other churches in the area that are given to us. So that's just to give you a little more information. If you have more questions, you can always talk to me or Chandler Cruz, our newest full-time employee, redemption worship director. I'm glad to be doing this with another person. It's wonderful. So with that being said, I've been on vacation. Here's what I do on vacation. I sit on the beach, I eat, and I read. And I read a lot of different books. I read Kurt Cobain's biography, insane. I read like... A few books on gender, gender transition, sexuality. I read a book on dying. What it's like. You're like, what? Aubrey's like, I can't believe I'm married to you. This is. But reading all those books, I came back with this firm belief that this moment, Michaela standing to read God's word, another person getting up here to preach and to explain God's word, matters a lot. Because as I read those books about Kurt Cobain, it, here's what the, the takeaway was. Everybody has this center to them. In this room, everybody has a center. Like you have something you're pulling from to do life. There's something at the core of each one of us that we have. And part of my story coming to Jesus is I had no center that was substantial. My parents didn't raise me in the church. We were kind of Catholic just when Nana was in town. We were like, yeah, we've been doing this Catholic thing really well when she showed up and then she left and we never went to church. And then my parents divorced, so the center of family gets split. And I go to high school. I'm like, all right, I think the center should be my athletic ability and greatness. So I try baseball, and I'm decent, but I'm very, very decent and very, very averagely sized. So I did not go far in baseball. I'm like, all right, I'll do the girl thing. And then my girlfriend leaves me in high school for a male cheerleader. If you're a male cheerleader, no offense, but come on. She left me (laughs) for a male cheerleader. And all these things that I'd placed in the center of my life 
had been ripped away. And at 18 years old, I go off to this camp in California to learn about baseball. And they're talking about Jesus. And I give my life to Jesus. In other words, I finally have a center that is substantial. And read about Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain got baptized in a Christian church, got brought in by a Christian family. And then it, like, lasted about a week. I don't know what his center was ultimately. I don't know what the center is in all this room, but everybody has a center, and the Word of God is our center. Not just like on a grand scale of life, but just in moments and transitions and seasons of life, we're all working from a center. Like I was just thinking through sort of situations in this church that are going on. I was just talking to a lady about retirement. She's entered retirement. She's trying to figure out, okay, what does this even look like? What does she need? She needs a center. She needs this to figure out, okay, what's this next stage of life like? We have all these people getting engaged. Great, wonderful, marriage is awesome. But if you don't have a center in your marriage beyond just the current attraction you both have, we have people also on the other side coming out of marriages that are failed and destruction and all the sadness and brokenness that you did not expect in this church, this early life of this church. We have both sides of the spectrum. What do these folks need? What do these folks need? They need a center. I think of people changing seasons of life and your kids get older and they start to move away. What do you need? You need a center. Refigure out. What are you doing? What does this look like? We all have a center. We need a center. That's why we do what we do here. We open up the book. That's what Ezra does in this. The Protestant Reformation was the banner statement was ad fonte, ad fontes, back to the sources. The Catholic Church had had the Bible. The leaders of the Catholic Church had the Bible. The laymen and women, you and I in this room, did not have a Bible. And the Protestant Reformation said this, we all need to go back to the source. Everybody was learning how to read. The printing press was making it available. We need to go back to the sources, not commentaries about the sources, not podcasts about this, not your favorite pastor that you listen to, not your favorite news. We need to go back to the sources. Ad Fonte. That's what the Renaissance was built on, too, coming out of the Dark Ages. What do we need? We need to go back to the sources. Their sources were different. It wasn't the Bible. It was the original Latin and Greek, wonderful original writings that we have. We need to go back to the sources. How do we go back to the sources? If we're going to go back to the sources, we've got to do what Nehemiah does here. Actually, Ezra, just look. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. Whatever you're dealing with, whatever I'm dealing with, whatever we're dealing with as a church, whatever it is, what we need to do is open the book because we need a center. Here's my big idea. It's pretty simple. If you're going to build or rebuild anything worthwhile in life, you need to open the book. And some of you may have never, ever read the Bible. I didn't read the Bible till I, I didn't read a book really till I was 19, and it was the Bible. I didn't, I just skipped through high school like most of us do. You lie, you cheat, you steal, and you get on with it. I opened a book when I became a Christian, and this is the best book I've ever opened. You need to open the book. Nehemiah 7 and 8 is about opening a book. Why do we open the book. I'm just going to walk through all of chapter 8. I'm supposed to teach chapter 7, but it's a genealogy, and we've done that already. We don't need to spend a lot of time. But chapter 8, there's six reasons why we need to open this book as a church. That's what we're going to do 
today. So as you know, Anthony taught last week. Great job, Anthony. I watched it. It was wonderful. And then Seth the week before. It was a great picture also of just Gateway. Seth is very smart. He uses big words. Anthony is also smart, but he uses less big words. And it was just a nice picture. Gateway, Alhambra. I feel like I'm a, if those two had a baby. <laughs> and the, with the dream of Arcadia adopting me into their, that's me. I'm an Arcadia adopted, Alhambra, Gateway, illegitimate child. And I get to preach. <laughs> Today. Here's a quick recap. Ezra and Nehemiah are these great books in the middle of the Bible. They go together. Ezra returned. They're going to the promised land. I won't spend a lot of time. In 458, 14 years later, Nehemiah comes to rebuild the wall because he hears the walls aren't what they should be. They're actually torn down. So Nehemiah comes back. Ezra has been there for 14 years, just kind of planting seeds, developing people, teaching the Bible, doing what he's doing. And Nehemiah comes back. He hears the wall is broken down. He comes back in spring. He starts the project kind of in the summer, kind of probably about right now, July 11th, say, and he finished 52 days later. That was Anthony's best last week. He finished. 52 days, the wall is finished. And then enter. This is where we're at now. We have about 40 to 50,000 people. They've given a lot. The end of chapter 7 is about financially what it costs them to come back. So they're committed. They're devoted. They love this place. Nehemiah's there. He's a great leader. Ezra there. He's a great leader. He's a little more kind of under the radar. They're there. What are they going to do now? They open the book. Let's read chapter 8, verse 1 through verse 3. And just see, why do we open the book? And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to come bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month, September, October-ish. And he read, it from it, read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Why do we open this thing as a church, as an individual? Why do you wake up early to read this or stay up late? Why do you open this book? Number one reason is because you are hungry for it. If you're not hungry for it, you're not going to open it. These people were hungry. Look at the words. They gathered. They gathered. They had to get up and move as one man. There's like this collective like throng of people. We are gathering. Again, 40 to 50,000. So think of Chase Park or whatever Dimebacks place is called these days. Full. That's how many people are gathering. And what do they do? They told Ezra, you bring the book. I love. And they told Ezra, you bring the book. We're not gathering here for gimmicks or hype or show or fluff. Ezra, get the book. Get it. And all the people were attentive to the book. In the original Hebrew, it, does, it just says, and all their ears turned to the book. Why? Because they were hungry for it. They wanted it. I used to be a math teacher. People ask, like, what's your favorite thing you ever taught? I taught, like, the beginning level freshmen, which I like because they're just kind of knuckleheads. And I taught seniors that have gone on to Stanford and got doctorates. And I've taught, like, all spectrums. But without a doubt, people say, what's your favorite class you ever taught? It was a community college class on Fillmore and Fifth Avenue, Rio Salado Community College for an ACE program, which is post-GED adults trying to get back into the college grind after never really graduating high school. So the average age was like 55 years old. 
Without a doubt, that class was the greatest class I ever taught, and it was the most boring basic math ever. It was remedial algebra. X plus 2 equals 4. What does X equal? X equals 2. And I was helping a bunch of 40, 56 year old people from rough backgrounds trying to get their foot back in the college door. Why did I love it? Because they were so hungry. Remember Juan, he was like, he was there an hour before class. He stayed after class. Why? Because he wanted it. That's what we see here. They want the Bible. They've seen Persia. They've seen that. They've seen the greatness that the world has to offer. And they said, Ezra, get the book. We want you to open the book. How did it get, like, who gets credit for this? If we are a church and cultivate a sense of wanting the book, and years from now we have people hungry for the book, which one of us gets credit? Just in this story, I think we should also all realize none of us are ultimately going to get the credit. It's all God. Because it's not really Nehemiah. Ezra's been doing work for years. The circumstances around them, they hated being in exile. Now they're coming out of it. Like life had kicked them around enough to make them realize you want something more. So who gets the credit for it? God gets the credit for it. We plant, we water, we cultivate, we trim, we do what we need to do. But God gives the growth, Corinthians says. But they were hungry for it. Are you hungry for this? Like I love and I hate open-end questions like that because certain people are like, I just don't know how to answer it. But I think you have a sense of like, do I crave this? Do I need this? Do I sense that this is what's most important in my life? Do I? The best illustration I've ever seen for sort of spiritual disciplines, Bible reading or whatever it may be, is from Jonathan Edwards. He lived a long time ago here in America, but he talks about a campfire. How does a campfire work? You have wood and you have fire. He says, here's what spiritual disciplines are. They are you bringing the logs and setting them on the fire. You do the work. You read your Bible. You choose a reading plan. You get through the books that are even boring. You decide to do this. And he says, the fire is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will do what it wants to do when it wants to do it. It will light that on fire. But what it has to light on fire is up to you and I. Are you hungry for God's word. Are you? For newer Christians in this room where you're like, you're trying to figure out like, here's what I love meeting with younger guys or guys that are figuring out faith for the first time because they just don't know anything. Like think about, I try to think about three tools. Do you have three tools in your tool belt for developing your faith? I'll give you three just to make it like, think of a hammer, a screwdriver, and a wrench. What are your like three basics? I got to have these. We're not talking about all the fancy saws yet, just some basics. Here's the first one. Gathering on Sundays. You're like, oh, I can count this? Yes, I'm a third of the way there. <laughs> it's a discipline to go to church. Because soon our cardinals are going to be back on TV, and it's going to be discipline to do this. Come to church. Get in a community. We got men's, men's ministry stuff happening. Casey in the women's ministry does great stuff. We got RCs. Get in a spot where you're around other Christians. And here's the third thing. Get together with someone who can help you start reading the Bible. And that can be your three basic tools you start with. And they grow into fasting and a lot of other things. But just if you've got nowhere, if you've started with nothing, come to church, get in a community, and ask someone to kind of read through a book of the Bible with you. And I promise you, God will show up. Are you hungry for his 
word. That's the first thing. That's why we open the book. Second reason, why do we open this book? We open this book to proclaim a public message for the world. We are not opening this book to be a bunch of privatized faith dwellers. This is a public message. Where do I see this? Let's read again. I'm going to start back in verse 3, even though we already read it. But let's read verse 3 down through verse 5. This is Ezra now explaining how he goes about reading. And he read from it the word, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. That's a long time. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could not understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood all those people that we already read about on his left hand. And verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. What's happening here? A church service. They built something so he could stand, so he was taller than all the rest. Where does he do it, though? There's a temple just down the block that would have been great. But it says they are in the square before the water gate. The word of God has moved out of the temple, and now it's a city message, not a city message on the same level as all the other messages, but it has been raised above to be heard by all because it is a public message that must be heard. Now, as a person who grew up with Catholic background, some face sort of make you feel like your faith should be a private thing. And I'm not saying our faith is an extroverted thing, like you need to go out and be a street evangelist. Don't. Most of those people are weird. You can be an introverted Christian. However, our faith, the message of our faith, the gospel message that we believe to be true is a message for the world. It is not a message to be enjoyed just in our closets by ourselves. It's not a private system of quotes and pick-me-ups and encouragements for lone individuals. It is a message for a broken, rebellious world that is running from God. That is why Ezra gets raised above all in the city and he preaches to a people a public message. We got the same public message. We call it the gospel that God came down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life amongst his Jewish brothers and sisters, was killed on a Roman cross, was placed in a grave, came out of his own grave, became king, ascended 40 days later, and he lives and reigns right now in this very moment as king of the universe. And one day he's coming back. That is a message that is public for all. That's why we raise up the preacher a little bit. That's why we stand to honor God's word. It's a public message. There's lots of self-help books that you can go read that you can keep to yourself. You cannot open this book and keep it to yourself. It is a public message for all. All of life is all for Jesus. This book is for any person, any time, any place, from any circumstances, no matter how good or how bad. This book is for you if you open it. We open the book because it has a public message for the world. What's the next thing? Why do we open this book? I love verse 6. It's my favorite verse in this whole section. Because I don't think I would have thought to do this like Ezra does. Let's read verse 6. And Ezra. So he hasn't read yet. This is him standing. The book is open. And Ezra blessed the Lord the great God, 
And all the people answered, Amen. Amen. Lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord. Before he gets into reading, he read from morning to lunch. He read for hours upon hours upon hours. But as he opens the book, Ezra stands and he blesses the Lord. And all the people say amen and amen. And they bow down and they worship who? The Lord. Why do we open this book? There are a thousand good answers to that question. Like in my marriage, I open it to be a better husband. It's the halfway mark of the year. I'm like kind of... I love to reevaluate and reassess. I'm thinking, okay, next six months of our life, what does it need to look like? Time-wise, money-wise, I go to the book. Thinking about leading a church, an organization, bringing on Chandler and developing younger leaders for our church, for the next generation of church leaders. You go to the book. Dealing with issues and family strife, you go to the book. Lots of great answers. But if you don't have one ultimate answer at the core of all that, you are missing it. We open the book because in this we get to meet God. Before he does anything, he blesses God. This is just a doorway to get us into relationship with God. It does not terminate. Our faith does not terminate on this. Like just a little interesting side note about the mind of God that he didn't explain why he did it, but I think this is why he did it. There's no original copies of any of the scriptures. Meaning like when Ezra, Nehemiah, whoever wrote this down, Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, guess, none of those are around anywhere. Why would God not allow us to preserve the original documents of the greatest book in the world? Because we'd be worshiping like a bunch of knuckleheads. Countries would go to war. Indiana Jones number seven would be made. Because we'd fight over the original, because we'd make this the end. It's the means to the end. The end is relationship with God. A.W. Tozer says this, what you think about when you close your eyes and think about God is the most important thing about you and about me. Like, that's hard. Like, God's invisible. I get it. Like, discipling kids is interesting because you're trying to get pictures of God without being heretical, but also not being so rigid and lame about who God is, because he's a person to get to know. And we get to know him in the scripture. We open the book to get to know him. There's two kind of follow-up questions. What do you think about God when you close your eyes is the most important thing about you? So here's the first question for maybe some of you in this room. Is what you think about actually God? Like the question is, am I worshiping something other than God? Do I actually have a picture of God of the scriptures. Me and Aubrey went to dinner with friends the other day who aren't religious at all or Christian by any stretch. And he said something, and they know I'm a pastor, they know the deal. He says, all religions are basically the same thing. Genesee would not have that. <laughs> and I like to say the spiritual side of me, like I prayed about it and I didn't answer in the moment, but the son's game was on behind him, so I'm like, oh, I'll just store this away and just remember... He said this. But here's why it's so all religions are trying to describe God. It'd be like this guy letting 12 people describe his wife, and they're all saying just horribly wrong stuff. He would not stand here and say, yeah, that's, I'm fine with that. No. Why? Because it's a person that needs to be described the way the person actually is. The Bible describes God the way he is. No other book does. All other religions that do not come out of this are describing a wrong God. That's a big problem. 
It's a big problem if somebody describes my wife wrong. It's a huge, cosmic, eternal problem if somebody describes God wrong. Open the book to get to know him. Here's my question for us who maybe don't have the ultimate question wrong. We have God. We have placed our faith in Jesus. We've opened the book. Here's, here's a question to kind of assess stuff. What have you learned about God recently? Not what arguments have you won? What books have you read? Pastor Josh on the beach. Big whoop. If you're not learning about God, what are we doing? A way to kind of journal this. I love God because... Or I love Jesus because that should be like a refreshing list of things you can go to if you're opening the book to get to know God. Otherwise, you're using someone else's sermons or someone else's quiet times or someone else's hard work of opening this to fall in love with the God that you can be falling in love with personally. Here's the next thing. We also open the book to have a mirror in this life. That's this next section. Where could the people of God gone for a mirror, meaning an assessment of how they're doing? They could have looked at Persia and Babylon, like, how are we doing against these guys? And they could have said, well, here's the bar they've set. Well, I'm here, so obviously I'm doing pretty good. They could have looked internally at the other people, which kind of we get into this in the next few chapters with marriage issues. Well, I'm not as bad as Chandler. I mean, Chandler's here. I'm here, so obviously I'm doing fine. We could have looked like... What, is, what, is, what do we learn from here? Let's read verse 7. Remember, as we read from morning till midday, it's a lot of mirror to look at. In Jeshua, Bani, Sherebi, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masai, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, great names. Steinbeckers just had a kid, by the way, if you know them. I think they named him Josabad and Hanan, Peleliah. <laughs> The Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Again, 40 to 50,000 people. What's going on here? Ezra is teaching, and then all these other people are kind of... Picture, you're at a Dimebacks game. It's full. You got a guy giving a message, and you got all these other people running up and down the stands explaining stuff. That's what's happening. It's church, like church on steroids, but it's what church is. It's the message and then being understood in community. Why does it need to be understood? Well, they've been with Persia for so long. Most of them probably speak Aramaic. The, the word of God is in Hebrew. There's a language disparity. Even now, I'm reading from a book originally in Hebrew, speaking in English. After it's gone through translation, translation, translation to get to us. There's an, uh, you got to get through those. There's cultural barriers. A lot of these people probably didn't feel very Jewish anymore. They felt like Persians. Like in, in all the ethnicity and cultural diversity talk, I'm always like, I don't really know. I feel Mexican because my mom raised me with this intense Mexican, but no, nobody would look at me like, that guy's obviously a Mexican. Like what do these people feel? Do they feel Jewish? Do they feel... It's like... They got to get through all these cultural barriers. Where back in the day when it was the people of God before exile, there was none of this like confusion. Now there's all this sorts of confusion. And that's what the church is. There's all these barriers to understanding what we read when we open 
the book. So they got people running around kind of explaining stuff. But then the best part of this is how they respond. He's reading, picture 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 9 a.m., 11 a.m. Did they fall asleep? Did they, like, hear it and go, you know what, we're nailing it. Like, we just had a birthday party for Roman. We invited a guy who's been a professional video gamer. You're like, that's a job, yeah. And I bring him in, and there's all these little boys. And a couple of the boys are like, yeah, but have you ever? I'm like, kids, shush, professional Fortniter, eight-year-old. <laughs> As they read the word of God, do they hear and be like, yeah, see, I've been nailing it. I, I, I've got this. Let's read how they respond, verse 9. Hours upon hours of the word being correctly taught and understood. Nehemiah, verse 9, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why do you have to say that? For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why did they weep? Because they looked in a mirror. And they didn't like what they saw. Now, most commentators jump to, like, a, a personal sin. Like, I think here's probably, there was a spectrum of personal sin, how I didn't measure up. I think a corporate, like, church sin, like, how we haven't measured up. But I think there's also a real aspect of, like, a, a, a universal sin, the brokenness of the world. This world is not as it should be. And they hear it, and they hear it, and they hear it, and they weep over the brokenness they see in their lives. And if you never open the book, you will never weep good tears. Tears of looking at the mirror of God's word and comparing it to your life are good tears. They're the best tears you can cry. Because they lead you to good news. Verse 10. Here's the response. Then he said to them, go your way. This day is holy. What's he talking about? In Leviticus, they're opening and they're realizing, oh, they're actually preaching, teaching, standing on the spot on this holy day that comes out of Leviticus 23. This is actually a day made by God for us to do something for God, namely remember God. So your tears are important, but God is more important. Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, send portions to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Tim Keller, here's the gospel. Tim Keller says this about it. It shows you that you are far more sinful than you could ever imagine, and at the same time far more loved and accepted than you could ever dare dream. And that's what Israel is realizing. Our sin is real. But Ezra says, no, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Your sin does not get the final word. God's goodness and faithfulness and covenant keeping gets the final word. Open the book and see the good news of the gospel. Here's the next thing. Fifth reason why we open the book. We open it to disciple our clans. What do I mean by that? Verse 13 so the first section, Ezra's teaching, is the first day of the month, September, October. And then verse 13 is the next day. So we're in like a new scene, picture a movie changing. Verse 13. And on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. Let me just stop right there. Notice, it's not everyone now. 
baseball stadium's not full. It's a select group of you in this room who have gone back the second day to be a part of what? To study the words in verse 14. They found it. They're searching the scriptures. They found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should go out and proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills, bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. We've switched now. It's no longer... A passive receiving of Ezra's teaching and the Levites and all the people running up and down the aisles of Chase Ballpark explaining to you the Bible. Now certain people have to get up and go and find in Scripture for themselves so they can go out and lead this people. That's called discipleship in the church. Who are the heads of the father's houses? They are the leaders of the homes. You're like, all right, am I implicated in this? Because I'm not. A guy, maybe I'm off the hook. I'm not a father, maybe I'm off the hook. Here, here's a question I wrote. Have you studied the word and found anything recently in there specifically for another person? If so, that's called discipleship. I'm going to study on behalf of Andrew. I'm going to study on behalf of the ladies of North Mountain. I'm going to study on behalf of, that's called discipleship. Now, if you haven't, you may be just somebody who needs to be under a head of a household for a while. And that is great. That's part of discipleship as well. But some of us need to get up, gather, study, and find truths, truth in this to pass on to others. That is discipleship. That's what we are called to as Christians. Matthew 28, the end of the gospel. Go, therefore, and make disciples. How are disciples made? They're made when people get up and they go and they study this and they find. And then they take what they find and they pass it on to other people. That's it. Like even on my vacation, I, I, for my quiet time, I decided I'm just going to read James every day. So I read James every day. And then I created like a concordance. Like, well, what's it say about the tongue and words? What's it say about money? What's it say about... And I just kind of went through that. And it was fascinating because here's what I realized. My family, my boys specifically, need to know some James because they are a hot mess. So we said, all right, get the index cards out. Let's write down. We're going to write down some James verses because you all need this. And then as I'm studying it, I re realized, you know what our church needs, especially I'm thinking about in the future as we're going through all these cultural convictions, gender, sexuality. I'm reading all these books that are just a lot to take in. I'm like, you know what would be great with this? It's all about how do you live with godly wisdom in a world that has none? Have you gone to this for the sake of someone else? If so, that's called discipleship. If not, that's fine. But you need to, in your mind, say, okay, do I need to be under someone else right now for a season? Or am I just being lazy? Have I punted on my responsibility to go out and share the gospel and make disciples of all nations? Like, here's the realms to think about. Are you finding anyone in your home? If you're a father, this is easy. If you're a mother, this is easy. If you're a grandparent, this is fairly easy. In your neighborhood or in your vocation that you can go and be that person for others. That's discipleship. We open it to disciple our clans. That's the fifth reason. And sixth, here's the last reason. We open it to remember that we live in a true story that God is writing. Where do I see that? Verse 16. 
We'll round it out here. So the people went out, brought them, and made booze for themselves. So just pause real quick. Festival of booze, we talked about in John. It was when Jesus showed up. It's went to remember the time when they were leaving Egypt on their way to the promised land, and they had to live in tents. So then God created this festival to reenact that so they would remember. Oh, yeah, remember? Even when we didn't have a home, we had a home because God was our father. And it's a seven-day festival. It's like a big music festival for days and days and days, except the focus is God. And that's what they're reading in now. Oh, keep reading. Each, uh, they brought them and made booths for themselves, middle of the verse, each on his roof, and in the courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in booths. My boys would love this festival. I don't know why we don't do it anymore. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, that would be Joshua after Moses. So for a long time, it hasn't been done this way. Maybe not to the full extent. Maybe they totally punch on, but they haven't been doing it like this, that they're reading in this word now. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day of the feast to last day, he read from the book of the law of, the God, law of God, which is what God said. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Why is God making all these festivals, Leviticus 23, for the people of God? Why does he give us communion and baptism? Why does he give us these like tangible things rather than just opening a book and this is the end of it all? Because he knows we are a forgetful bunch. And we need to remember For the Jewish people, it was all these festivals to remember all the faithful acts of God throughout their time. When they're in slavery, he got them out. He kept them. He kept them up. He kept them. He he provided. It's to remember the story of God. We are a forgetful, forgetful bunch. He's trying to help us to remember. That's it. That's mostly what Christian discipleship, Christian church, Christian ministry, Christian discipleship in the home when it's done well is helping the people of God remember who God is, what he's done, and then so what in light of all that we just read and understood. What do we do now? That's the Christian life, remembering. It makes me think of one of my favorite marriage verses is remember the wife of your youth. Some say rejoice in the wife of your youth. You mean you're like, I mean, like, rejoice in your wife 15 years ago and all she was? That would get us into a lot of trouble. I think it's remember what it was like 15 years ago. My wife and I are coming up on our 14th anniversary. Remember what it was like 14 years ago. Remember when you first laid eyes on her. Remember when you first had a deep talk about faith. Remember when you first shared something really scary and vulnerable. Remember. Our relationship with the Lord and with his book is no different. Sometimes we have to stop and remember the God of our youth, the gospel of our youth. Not that it's changed. It's the same. Hebrew says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. But we forget. We need to stop and remember. Like I picture I used to watch Scrubs. I love the show. JD was the lead character. If you didn't watch it, that's fine. But he'd always like daydream. He'd kind of look, and then he'd be talking in his head. Like, as you think about God and his word, can you daydream back? Like I wrote down, do you remember the first time this meant something to you? Mine was in a Barnes & Noble, Fort Worth, Texas, all by myself. I'm like, wow, Psalm 16. In the presence 
of the Lord. There is fullness of joy. Wow. I'd been a Christian four years, but this hadn't been open like it should have been. Do you remember the first person that helped you understand this? Like, do you, do you remember? So much of Christian life is just filled up with all the stuff that we all get filled up. But we need to stop and remember the God of our youth. Do you remember the first time in church you experienced this taught powerfully, prophetically? Denton Bible in Denton, Texas. Tommy Nelson gets up and preaches, and I bawl. 25-year-old young man crying because he is telling the story of the world from this book. I've never seen a man stand so confidently and powerfully and teach this. Do you remember the first time you fell in love with this book? Like maybe as I pray for Sundays and sermons, I think of like specific things I want to happen sometimes, often just kind of God do your thing. But I want us to remember the God of our youth that we meet only when we open this thing. The greatest gift he's given to us because it shows us him. We meet Jesus in it. And we know all we need to know about life and godliness because we open the book. Amen? Let me pray for us. Jesus, make us a people of the book. My Muslim friends would call me a man of the book. And yet they mean something far different. They just mean I'm religious. We don't want to be religious. We want to be in love with you. So like Ezra and Nehemiah who stood and opened the book, may we be a church that stands and opens the book. May we have redemption communities and men's ministries and women's ministries that open the book. May we have homes that open the book and not ever to be able to have pride to look down on others, but simply to know you, your gospel, and ultimately what really matters in life. It's only found in this. And much like Jesus and the forgiveness he offers, you did not have to give us this. By your grace and by your mercy, you chose to have the Holy Spirit inspire the words of this book through the authors you chose and through those that would preserve it and keep it so that we would have it here even this moment thousands of years later. God, thank you for this beautiful gift. Just name I pray.